Thank you, Brother Mike. Shall we appreciate our dear brother, Mike Yap? <clears throat> he oversees our men's ministry and also the prayer ministry. So if you uh, have any questions about how you can be active in the men's ministry or how you can be of service there, you can approach Mike uh, anytime after the service. Good morning, everyone. You know, why don't we wave to the people who are joining us online, and as we wave, let's say, He is risen, hallelujah. That's why we're here. You know, last Sunday, we remembered Jesus' triumphal, triumphal entry into Jerusalem, but today we celebrate His glorious exit from the tomb. Praise God. What a reason to celebrate. And we are still in our Changemakers series, definitely. This is only our third episode. And uh, two Sundays ago, Pastor Peter started us off by talking about Moses and showed us how a surrendered leader can be a positive influence. Last Sunday, we talked about a very young king. Do you remember his name? Josiah. And from his example, we realized God can use anyone from, you know, all walks of life and almost any age to, be, to really make a difference in this world. Now, today we're going to talk about the ultimate change maker. You know his name, right? What's his name? Jesus, the risen Lord. And why is this important? Uh, to know Jesus, the ultimate change maker, and have him make the ultimate change in our lives. Why is that important to all of us here today, all of us watching online and people around the world? Well, you know, a few weeks ago, one of our elders shared in, in one of the meetings, he shared this particular new word from the dictionary. The word is permacrisis. This was the Collins Dictionary 2022 word of the year, permacrisis. You may or you may not have heard about this word, but this is what it means. An extended period of instability and insecurity, especially one resulting from a series of catastrophic events. Obviously, what led to the formation of this world, word was most likely the pandemic, right? When it seemed like the world was crashing down on everyone. But then it didn't end there. And even if we still are technically in the pandemic, then you still, have like, you still, you still had things like uh, natural disasters, like a series of earthquakes, tornadoes. You have the problems in Israel. You have the threat of uh, China invading Taiwan. You have the tensions with Iran and the U.S., and all of these other things. And it's like, when will these things ever come to an end? Well, the truth is they won't. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. But I think the greater reason is not so much the permacrisis we observe around the world, although that kind of gets to us many times because they affect the price of gas in our country and the price of groceries. But I think more than that, it's the crisis we face in our own lives. Loss of a loved one, health issues, financial pressures. You see, the one thing that this world has always needed and will need until the day this world is done is genuine hope. That's what we need. And even if some people will you know, dig in their heels and say, well, you know, I'm a strong person. Even if there is crisis in my life or around the world, I will adapt and I will get over this. 
Well, that's good, but there's more to life than just this life on earth. And you know what? When a person transitions from earth to eternity without Jesus, the crisis has only just begun. So where do we go for genuine hope, both in this life and for the next? We go to Jesus, the Jesus whose resurrection we celebrate. That's why today's message is, Jesus is risen, that changes everything. Would you agree? Everything about this world and about the next. Because Jesus is risen, we know that changes the whole ballgame. And why is it that we pin our hopes on Jesus? Well, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, we read, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again, that is a spiritual rebirth. Okay, it's not joining another religion. It is a personal spiritual rebirth by Jesus into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus is our living hope. He is, he is risen and He lives forever. And you know the word hope, when we read it in, like in the Bible, like we read it this morning, it's not the word hope that you and I often understand, like, uh, will you come to my party tonight? Oh, I hope so. You know, that's our polite way of saying, don't count on me. Or, uh, will, I hope to be married someday, or I hope to land a better job. It's, it's not a statement of certainty. But when we read the word hope in the Bible, the word actually means an expectation of what is sure and certain. And what is sure and certain is that Jesus has risen, and that changes everything. Now, today we're going to look at a few people who have had a, an encounter with the risen Jesus and how He made the greatest difference in their lives and how their experience can be true for you and for me today. But just before we examine those lives that encountered the risen Jesus, maybe just a, a few things to remind us as to why we are convinced the resurrection really happened. Well, just a few things. You can look this up in the internet. There's so many uh, proofs, evidence about the, uh, the inequivocal fact that Jesus rose from the dead. But we'll just look at a few this morning. The first one has to do with women witnesses. Now, uh, with all due respect to the ladies in the audience, we're talking about first century facts, okay? Now, why are we talking about women witnesses as a, a proof that Jesus really rose from the dead? Well, let's read what the Bible has to say. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he has risen. What is the importance of the women as the first responders, so to speak, the first witnesses of the resurrection? You see, in the first century, 
women were not regarded with much respect or esteem. As a matter of fact, their testimony would be given very little credence in a Jewish court. Some will even go as far as saying it was totally inadmissible. So if the gospel writers were out to concoct a fake resurrection story, they would not have used women as the first witnesses. They would have used men. Because if a Jewish court or any other tribunal were to summon the witnesses, they would have summoned the witnesses who were at that time acceptable and credible in court. It's amazing the things that we learn from the, the resurrection account itself that proves that it really happened. Now, the other, uh, the other reason why we believe it actually happened is the empty tomb. Do you realize that neither the Romans nor the Jews could deny that the tomb was empty? It was in their best interest to make sure that Jesus' body stayed in the tomb. Because in case anybody came up and said, He is risen, all they need to do is say, Really? Look inside. Or, Here's the corpse. So much for your resurrected Messiah. But let's read the account in Matthew. Pilate said to them, to the Jewish leaders, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. Now we presume, being a Roman governor, that he was referring to a Roman guard. And you and I know that the Roman soldiers were the military elite of that time. And so if the order is make it as secure as you know how, you know that they're going to do an excellent job. And they went and made the grave secure. And along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. This is the seal of the Roman governor. And breaking that seal, in this case, presumably to steal the body of Jesus, would mean capital punishment, the death penalty. So they really made the tomb as secure as they knew how. But in verse 2, it says, Behold, a severe, of chapter 28, a severe earthquake had occurred, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled away the stone and sat upon it. Now, that would have been a real spectacle to behold, right? And look at the re reaction of the guards. It says, And his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing as white as snow. The guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. You know, these Roman guards, they're like the United States Marines. And yet, when they saw this angel who rolled the stone away, it says, they shook for fear and became like dead men. You know, I realized something. I was listening to Tim and Kathy Keller talking about the resurrection just a, a day or two ago. And, you know, they were just realizing, remembering that Jesus didn't need an angel to move the stone away for him. <clears throat> Do you realize that? A, he could have done it himself, being the creator of the universe. And actually, B, he didn't even need the stone to be rolled away because he could have walked through it just like he walked through the walls when he appeared to the disciples a little bit later on. But God sent an angel to roll the stone away so that they and you and I today could know that the tomb was empty. But the story doesn't end there. It says, Now while they were on their way, some of the guard came into the city and reported to the chief priests all that had happened. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers. So corruption is a very old practice, okay? 
they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers and said, you are to say his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this should come to the governor's ears, we will win him over and keep you out of trouble. Do you realize <clears throat> how ridiculous a story this is? That the disciples came by at night and stole him away while we, the guards, were asleep? This is how ridiculous that is. First of all, you and I know from other accounts that the disciples were extremely afraid because they thought that their cause had been defeated when they saw their leader die on a Roman cross. And so they were extremely afraid and they were hidden behind locked doors by this time. You're telling me, if this story were true, that these fearful disciples had the temerity and the courage to come to the tomb, to overpower Roman guards, to push the stone away, which reportedly must have weighed about two tons. So that means they must have made enough noise for the guards to wake up, but it says they stole him while we were asleep. I mean, it just doesn't fit. And for the Roman guards to be asleep on the job and to lose a, in this case, a prisoner, although he was a dead prisoner to them, they would also be meted capital punishment for failure to guard the person they were supposed to guard. So all of this it would have been a ridiculous story. It must have taken a lot of money to convince these people to spin that yarn, so to speak. And ultimately, for the disciples to overpower the Roman guard and then to speak of a resurrection that they know never happened, and yet ultimately to give their lives for a lie, that would be the most ridiculous conclusion anyone could ever make. And finally, for those of us who are OC, you know OC? You understand that? Well, let's talk about the grave clothes. Why are these important? Well, let's have a look. It says, so Peter and the other disciples, this is now in the Gospel of John, went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Folks, when you examine the terminology, the linen wrappings, it's plural, okay? It's, it means plural strips of linen cloth for swathing, meaning wrapping in several layers the dead. It's like a mummy. And you and I know from uh, John chapter 19, you can read it on your own, that the process of preparing and wrapping Jesus' body included the administration of, of, of about 100 pounds of aromatic spices. So the point is this, but we're not done yet. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple who had first come to the tomb then also entered, and he saw and he believed. Why is this important? 
If you were a grave robber and your mission was to steal the body of Jesus, assuming you overpowered the Roman guard, assuming you had the strength to roll a two-ton stone away, would you leave the grave clothes behind? You would not. And you certainly wouldn't leave them in a very neat way. I mean, the most convenient thing, the most uh, efficient thing would have been to carry the whole wrapped body out of the tomb and get out of there as fast as you could, right? Am I right or am I correct? But no, the, the linen wrappings and the face cloth were lying there just like they had been. And Jesus had just emerged from them. At the very least, if you had the objective of leaving the linen wrappings there, you would have torn them apart as quickly as possible. How many of you here, when you get a Christmas or a birthday gift, you just tear up the wrapper because you're so excited to see what the gift is? How many of you are like that? I'm like that. Okay. How many of you, you know, when you unwrap a gift, it's like, oh, you know, little by little, suspense. I can still use the wrapper next year, you know? How many of you are like that? Okay, you're the weird ones. Anyway, but see, that's the point. And these are just some of the things which point to the fact that there can be no other conclusion except that Jesus is what? He is risen, and He is risen indeed. And we've had many people throughout history, many of them great legal minds, who did not believe in Jesus, made their own investigations, and became followers of Jesus as a result. Two years ago, we had this man speak in CCF, although it was online. His name is Lee Strobel. He was the legal editor for the Chicago Tribune. And he, having been an atheist, decided to file a case against Jesus. Yeah, of course, not literally file a case in court, but file a case against him to discredit who he is, most, more specifically, the claim that he had risen from the dead. And so he interviewed many people from different I guess, uh, ends of the religious spectrum, some people not even believing in any God, but they, he, you know, he researched as thoroughly as he normally would any case that he was investigating, and this was among his conclusions. He said, the resurrection is the supreme vindication of Jesus' divine identity and his inspired teaching. It's the proof of his triumph over sin and death. It's the foreshadowing of the resurrection of his followers. It's the basis of Christian hope. That's what we're talking about, hope today. It's the miracle of all miracles. And that's why he is a follower of Jesus today, because he is risen, and that changes everything. Aren't you glad he's risen today? Praise God indeed. Okay, closing prayer. <laughs> now, what do we mean by Jesus changes everything? Well, we don't have the time to talk about everything, but here are three aspects of life. And we will see how these three aspects of life changed for people who came face to face with the risen Jesus and how these changes can be true for you and for me today. So let's go. What are these things that Jesus can change? Just 
Sorry about that. Just three things. Jesus can change the pain in our life. He may not change the circumstances, but he can change the way we respond. Our resiliency, our view of, how, what things, of things that are going on in our lives, which brings us to the next one. He can change our perspective. And oh, this is a very big change in perspective indeed. We'll talk about that in a moment. And finally, he can change the purpose for our lives. So let's talk about changing our pain. Remember the word permacrisis, the new word we learned today? Perhaps some of you are here today or you're watching online and you're going through some kind of pain. Well, the risen Jesus can make a great change in your life in that respect. What about turning sorrow into joy? Would you like that to happen in your life? Well, let's see, how did it happen for some people? But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. The word weeping here means not just, you know, crying silently, but wailing, sobbing. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? It's a good question. And maybe, like I said, there are some of you here, you may not be shedding tears literally right now, but you're weeping inside. And it's as if the Lord and His Spirit is asking you and me, why are you weeping? What troubles you? And Mary answered, she said, because they have taken away my Lord and I do not know where they have laid Him. And when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Now, we can't entirely explain why that was so, but maybe here's the application to us. Perhaps you're in a deep and dark and painful situation in your life right now. It's bringing you sorrow in your heart. And somehow, you cannot see God in the picture. Have you been in that situation? God, I know you're real. But I don't see you in this picture. I, don't, I can't understand why you're allowing this to happen in my life. Remember that old song, God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. But if you don't understand, you can't see his plan, you can't trace his hand, trust his, trust his heart. But more than trusting his heart, trusting in the fact that he is there. You know, I've had days when I just honestly told Jesus, Lord, my heart is full of sorrow, and I don't feel you. But you know, he quickly brought me back to the fact that truth will always trump feelings. And so, Lord, even if I don't feel your presence, I know you are here with me. And that fact, because he's risen, because he's alive, can turn our sorrow into joy. How did that happen for this lady 2,000 years ago? Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Same question. By the way, the word woman is not disrespectful. You might think, you know, being a Filipino audience, like, hoy babae. No, <laughs> that's, that's not what he meant. It's actually a term of respect. But he was addressing her first in a 
general way. Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. Some people say the sweetest sound is the sound of your own name. The only sweeter sound is the name of Jesus. She recognized him. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. And you know what brings me great comfort, what gives me great joy, and what should give you great joy today is Jesus knows you by name. If he has given names to every star in the universe, and even in the Old Testament he said, I have called you by name, you are mine. If you think you are suffering alone, you are wallowing in sorrow all by yourself, please think again. Jesus is alive. And you may not see him, but his presence is right where you are. You call upon him. He is as close as the mention of his name. And let him call you by name as well and comfort your heart. He's a personal, compassionate Savior. So Jesus can turn sorrow into joy because he is risen. What about fear into peace? Are you here today and there's some fear in your heart? Uncertainties about the future, your family, your business, your work? Whatever it may be, Jesus, because he's alive, can turn our fear into peace. How did that happen? For the people back then. Well, let's see. John 20, 19. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and when the doors were shut where the disciples were, remember we were saying, why were they behind closed doors? Because of fear. Their knees were knocking out of fear for the Jews. Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, what did he say? Jesus will always be intentional, purposeful, and careful with his words. He wastes not a single word. He didn't say, what's up, y'all? He said, peace be with you. He knew that is exactly what they needed because fear was gripping their minds and their hearts. Now, what does this peace mean? Does it mean the absence of problems? Does it mean that the source of fear will magically disappear? Not necessarily. This is what that peace means. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. In other words, what would bring them peace is the assurance that he kept his promise that he would rise from the dead on the third day. The disciples then rejoiced. Their sorrow became joy. Their fear became peace when they saw the Lord. And so Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. What is the meaning of this word peace that Jesus was imparting to them? It means when all essential parts are joined together. It is God's gift of wholeness. In other words, fear has a way of making our life seem to fall apart. 
Have you ever felt that before? When you're afraid of your circumstances or certain people, it's like your life is falling apart and you have no clue how to put it back together again. That is what the peace of Jesus does. It may not change the circumstances, although He could, but He helps put our lives back together again. He gives us a solid foundation, a rock to stand on, and that rock, as the Bible says, is Christ Himself. Let me tell you about this young lady. It's about Kyla. Kyla is today, and I have her permission to say this, Kyla is today 28 years old. She's a member of CCF. Kyla had tremendous and successive, repetitive health challenges throughout her young life. Even as a child, she would have surgery, one surgery after another, and they had suspected cancer and so forth, but at least in the earlier years of her life, the tests came out benign, but the health challenges continued. In December 2021, in the midst of the pandemic, she really hit rock bottom. She had yet another surgery, and this time she was diagnosed with malignant cancer. And so her world came crashing down. She was at her lowest low. She was depressed. She had doubts. She had fears. She had all of these things. She didn't know what to do with her life. And as she looked at the future, she couldn't see farther than the next day. And she wondered to the Lord, Lord, will I, how long will I live? And will I ever have the, the privilege of have being in a relationship and getting married and having children as so many people in this world do? Am I going to be deprived of, of that blessing? So those were her fears. And that is why her, her life was shattering into many, many pieces. But you know, the Lord began to put her life back together again. And He assured her that because He is alive, she can, be, she can rest at ease about tomorrow, whatever that tomorrow may bring. And so the Lord set her on an amazing trajectory. He began to use her to minister to other people with cancer, many of them even younger than herself. She ministered to people as young as 21, 20, 13, seven years old, diagnosed with cancer. She would share the gospel with them, made sure that they came to know the risen Savior as their Lord. Some of these people she ministered to have gone to be with Jesus already since that time. But she's found her place because Jesus gave her peace. And you know, I met Kyla on a few occasions, and I tell you, despite her health challenges, this young lady, she has boundless energy. And she would travel, she would drive long distances just to minister to someone who is sick and share the risen Jesus with that person. Why? Why is it worth it for her to do that? Because Jesus is alive, and He is alive in her life. So God can... Yeah, you know... <laughs> Jesus can turn our doubt into faith. Oh, I know you can guess which person we're going to talk about this time, right? What's his name? Thomas, that's right. 
Actually, if you ask me, Thomas was not just a doubter. I mean, he was like in outright unbelief. But let's give him the benefit of the... Okay, you said it. <laughs> yeah, let's see his story. John 20. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. And so the other disciples were saying to him, Pare! No, sorry, that's not there. But we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and put my finger into the place of the nails, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. You know, I'm not sure <clears throat> what was going on in Thomas's mind. I mean, what, you, you look at what he's saying and you may ask, you, what's with this guy? The, the other disciples, his best and only friends in life, <clears throat> were already telling him, we have seen the Lord. You would think that at least Thomas would say, oh, I'm so, I feel so bad I wasn't here when it happened. I pray he will come back again so I can see him like you saw him. I mean, wouldn't that have been a more appropriate response from Thomas? No, I said, no, unless I see him, unless I put my finger in all of these things, I will not believe. <clears throat> but you know what we see next? We see the grace and the love of Jesus. Because then it says, then he said to Thomas when Jesus showed up, <clears throat> by the way, Jesus never knocked on the door. He just showed up. It's really amazing. That's why he could have just walked through that stone that uh, covered his tomb. Then he said to Thomas, reach here with your finger. See my hands. Reach here with your hand and put it into my side. And do not be unbelieving, but believing. It was a very gentle rebuke. It was a rebuke, but it was very gentle. And what was Jesus' desire in the end for Thomas? He wanted for him to go from doubt to faith, unbelieving to believing. So what was Thomas' answer? Thomas answered and said to him, you would think ordinarily Thomas' answer would have been, okay, Lord, it's true, you're alive. But he answered much more than that. What did he say? My Lord and my God. You see, if we encounter personally the resurrected, risen Jesus, that should be the exclamation of our mouth and the conviction of our heart. My Lord and my God. You may be sitting here today or you may be watching online and you're like Thomas. You're resisting the gospel, you're resisting the grace of God in your life. You're wanting to live your life on your own. And up to this day, despite all of the proof, despite all of God's reaching out into your life, you still say, I will not believe unless he does something. Well, you know, he's doing something right now. I believe he's speaking to you. And I pray that you will respond in all humility like Thomas did and say, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. You know, there's nobody in this room who actually saw the resurrection take place. 
And yet, by the grace of God, we believed. And you know, Jesus calls us blessed. Tell the person next to you, you are blessed today. You are truly blessed. Because even if you didn't see the resurrection happen, you know it happened and you believe. How does Jesus turn doubt into faith in the 21st century? Let me give an example. Let me tell you about this young man named Carlo. Carlo was an atheist. <clears throat> he totally did not believe in any God. Certainly, he didn't believe in the Bible. Certainly, he didn't believe in Jesus. Now, his wife was a member of a cult which supposedly would teach the Bible. But actually, they were not. They were teaching their own distorted doctrine. So this Carlo was very concerned about his wife, whom he knew was part of a cult, who supposedly boasted of teaching the Bible. So Carlo was so concerned, and he wanted to get his wife out of this cult. Now, he couldn't just say, get out, or order her to get out. <clears throat> he figured the most persuasive or effective way to get her out is to prove that these people were teaching the wrong thing. So what did Carlo do? Now, this guy is very smart. I met him personally several years ago. Very smart guy. So what was his strategy? To prove to his wife that what that cult was teaching was wrong. Guess what he did? The atheist studied the Bible. How awesome is that? So this atheist guy began studying the Bible. He began studying about Jesus. And to make the long story short, the atheist Carlo became a follower of Jesus. And then, because he knew the real truth, he was able to convince his wife that what that group was teaching was wrong. And today, they're part of one of our satellites and they're serving Jesus together. How awesome is that? Jesus is the real change maker. Yes, he can change our pain, whether or not that means changing our circumstances. And connected to that is he will change our perspective. Now, there are many ways that Jesus can change our perspective. But let me tell you the most important way <clears throat> that Jesus changes our perspective. He changes our perspective from earthly to eternal. I mean, that's how much of a stretch he gives your perspective and mine, from earthly to the eternal. Like we said earlier, even if some people can say, I don't need God to get over my personal crisis, I will adapt. I can do this. What happens at the end of life? The real crisis, the eternal crisis would have just begun. But Jesus changes our perspective from earthly to eternal. You remember this man, the amazing Billy Graham. And I love this quotation from him. He said, Someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. Jesus can change our perspective 
from the earthly to the eternal. So that even as we live on this earth, we live with that eternal perspective. I'm reminded last Sunday, I had the privilege of doing a funeral service for one of our brothers. Some weeks before that, I actually visited him. His life was slowly, you know, being, just disappearing from his physical body. And one day, he said his goodbyes to his family and so forth, and he said, I'm going home. I'm going home. He went to sleep. He woke up the next morning. He was still alive. So he was actually telling his family, why am I not home yet? He was actually disappointed. But that's how God changes our perspective. Now, what is our basis for this eternal perspective? The Apostle Paul wrote, if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is, is worthless. We're wasting our time in this place if Jesus has not risen from the dead. You are still in your sins. So we have no hope in eternity. Then those also who have fallen asleep, meaning died in Christ, have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. In other words, the resurrection is the cornerstone and foundation of Christianity without any doubt at all. Now I say this, brethren, this is the perspective you and I should have. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Jesus is the ultimate change maker. This is how he's going to do it. It says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this imperishable must put on the imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. You know, and then the Apostle Paul continues, but when this perishable will have put on in the imperishable, this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that this, that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is <clears throat> your sting? It's just a door that opens and says the best is yet to come. You know, God has a place reserved for you and me who put our faith in Jesus. It's a real place. It's not a state of mind. And it's described as best as God can put it in the Bible itself. And you and I have read this before. Revelation chapter 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. What will make heaven heaven? Is it the streets of gold? That's only part of it. What will make heaven heaven is the company we will keep. We will be with God himself, face to face with Jesus, and we will be together with all of the people who had put their faith in him from eternity past. Isn't that amazing? And then it says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And look at what Jesus said. He who sits on the throne said, let's read this together. Behold, I am making all things new. That's why Jesus is the ultimate change maker. 
Today is a very meaningful day for me. April 9, exactly two years since my wife went to be with Jesus. And this is Resurrection Sunday. How amazing is that timing? And you know, yeah, give him the glory. God indeed changes our perspective. He also changes our pain. And finally, he changes our purpose in life. And there is no greater example than the Apostle Paul. From persecutor to proclaimer, or if you like, to preacher. Now, you may not be a persecutor. You may just be a passive resistor to the truth of the Bible. Or maybe you're already a Christian, but your Christian life is passive. You're not making Jesus known. Well, let's learn what we can learn from the Apostle Paul. 1 Corinthians 15, again, it says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time. You see, that's why it cannot be a hallucination. You cannot have 500 people hallucinating at the same time. I mean, what were these people smoking if they were all hallucinating at the same time, right? Most of whom remain until now, meaning to say, you can ask them and they'll tell you. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to me, as one untimely born. The, the word untimely born means like an abortion or a miscarriage, meaning to say, the apostle Paul is just saying, I don't deserve to have met Jesus. It's all by his grace. And how did that happen? It says, as he was traveling, this is from Acts, it happened that he was approaching Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul came face to face with the risen Jesus. And you know, his life was transformed. The trajectory, the purpose of his life changed completely because it says further down, now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all those hearing him continued to be amazed and were saying, because they knew what this guy was about. This is what they were saying. Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name and who had come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests. Jesus will really change the purpose of our lives. It happens even today. I'd like to present to you, ladies and gentlemen, Exhibit A of a Changed Life. Brother Mel, will you come and share your story with us, please, as we come to the end of our time together. Let's welcome our brother Mel Viloria. My curiosity about God, eternity, and other related things came about when I saw my grandfather's lifeless body. I stared intensely at it, and I shuddered, and I thought, does it end here? From this experience, I began my search to make sense of why do we even bother to exist and to find answers to the question, is there really a God? 
These were my first existential questions as an eight-year-old boy. After some time, my search discovered more questions. Why live than die? Is there really life after death? Is there even a God? What is the meaning of life? That last question assumed that there is meaning to life, and that assumption captured my imagination. Since I was born with uh, fragile health, it was medically predicted that I might die early. The thought of dying early made my search even more desperate. Concerning family beliefs, my father's side was a mix of atheists and agnostics. My mother's side, on the other hand, had some spiritists and animists. I was born in the middle of two conflicting worldviews. At age 12, I fully embraced the idea that there is no God. I abandoned the thought that God, angels, or demons might exist. I despised heaven and hell and rejected any form of miracle, including the virgin birth and the resurrection. I even ripped a Bible to pieces, too, by the way, just to remind myself that I would not dare believe in it. I had an arrogant, I'm sorry, I had an arrogant attitude against religion in any kind. Looking back, I tried to figure out what caused my hostility against God. Perhaps I had wrong expectations of God. At age 15, my desperation to grasp the meaning of life was at its worst. I was lost more than ever. The idea of death had overtaken me so much that I intentionally kept myself awake for fear of not waking up. I thought that if you're afraid of death, you should be afraid of sleep. I would sit my back against the wall and wait for the morning. I only experience sleep whenever I get weary of preventing it. I don't mind dying if I knew why I existed in the first place. <clears throat> and each time I wake up, I was extremely thankful and happy. The painfully difficult part of being alive again was there was no one to give thanks to. I start my day with fearful, with fearful anticipation that my search for meaning will be unfruitful. And it was always painful to end the day without answers. The cycle went on and on. Sometime later, a classmate befriended me. I discovered that he's a follower of Jesus. And when you discover something like that, you know what happens next. We had friendly exchanges about life in general, and the interesting part was that he made sense. The way he conducted his life slowly disarmed my hostility or my hostile attitude towards religion. His friends were like him, weird. Watching how they behaved made me think they were from another world. I failed to understand what makes them attractively different. One thing was certain, I always wanted to be with them even though I disliked them. I often declined to join their Bible studies, but eventually I agreed. I immediately regretted it. Imagine hearing that Jesus walked on water. I thought, how could someone even control the laws of physics and chemistry? I made sure that I sat near the door so I can escape unharmed. Silently, I stood up to leave, then the Bible teacher asked, Matagal niyo na bang hinahanap ang meaning ng buhay niyo? Meaning, have you, ever, have you been searching for the meaning of your life for a long time? Then I stopped 
and sat down again thinking, is he talking to me? And how did he even know? Then I heard the gospel about Jesus. I attentively listened. As the message ended, I heard splashes of waves. I looked around, figuring out if they're making sound effects for dramatic purposes. There was none. My heart was pounding. Then I smelt something like salt water. My heart pounded even faster. I became agitated. Why am I sensing these? I felt they were being forced on me. And the unspeakable happened. I whispered, is that you, God? And I whispered back to myself, no, there is no God. The struggle took some time. Finally, I surrendered. Then a fresh breeze of wind touched my face. It was comforting. It was a sensation of the strangest kind, yet it was real. My senses were so much alive. Then I felt ashamed of the things I thought and said about God. That night, I dared myself to believe in Jesus as the Son of God. My first prayer was awkward, but it was genuine. I slept well that night, and I woke up thanking God. Then I told my family that I had found in Jesus the meaning that I desperately searched for, and my newfound faith was challenged. I learned patience and prayer. In time, my family also came to know the Lord. Even as a young follower of Jesus, I kept my faith fully engaged. Wherever and whenever there was opportunity, university campuses, the corporate workplace, social events, and other public discussions. I enjoyed creating opportunities, starting conversations, and asking people questions about their beliefs until they asked me one. When I look back, I am tempted to think that I have come a long way. But whenever I look ahead and recognize the kind of character I should become, I am humbled by the realization that Christ's likeness is still remotely far. I am still growing in the knowledge of God, both in character and practice. Presently, I serve God by leading discipleship groups in CCF. I also serve in NextGen as a speaker and as a small group teacher. In my 30 plus years of engaging children, I have had priceless opportunities to share Christ and make Christianity understandable to them. I also speak at events where we help believers engage the intellectual and cultural challenges to the Christian faith. I also serve via online as a volunteer teacher for GLC. I am deeply grateful to my lovely, incredibly supportive wife, Sasa, who is also my faithful ministry partner in serving various D groups and CCF ministries, such as NextGen. Uh, we need more volunteers, by the way. We have been serving God together for 15 years. God is real and active in making himself known to people. Indeed, when one meets the risen Jesus, he changes everything. I am Mel Loria. To God be the utmost honor and glory. Praise God, Brother Mel. And I echo your call out for volunteers for NextGen. If you're, if you're a young family, here, stay in the middle. If you're a young family, father, mother, and young children, next-gen age children, I would encourage you to serve together. And so go down to next-gen, if you're not doing that yet, and, and just ask them how you can serve. 
But in the meantime, are you blessed by Brother Mel's story? Now, this is Pastor Irwin. Pastor Irwin is the D-group leader of Brother Mel. So why don't we pray for both of them as we end our time together? Father God, we thank you for, you really, your grace is amazing. And your stories of how you transform people, they just never get old, never get tired. We thank you, Lord, for your story that you continue to weave in the life of Brother Mel, his wife, and the young people whom you touch through their ministry. Pray, Lord, your blessing upon him. Continue to give him spiritual and physical strength. Help him to continue to walk the straight and narrow path of joyful, heartfelt obedience to you. We also pray for Pastor Irwin. We thank you, Lord, for his faithfulness. We thank you for his love for you and for your people and for people who don't know you yet as Lord and Savior. I pray for comfort for him and his family. I know he misses his wife like I miss mine. But Lord, we thank you that because of you, our perspective stretches into eternity, into the place where we will all be together with you someday. Bless them now beyond their asking, thinking, or imagining. We ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. and amen. Thank you so much, guys. So as we end, of course, the question is, how do we respond? You know, one of the most amazing things about the resurrection <clears throat> is that it's not just an event. It's a person. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. I am the assurance because I came back to life, you can be sure that if you put your faith in me, the same will happen with you. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. But the key question is the last one. Can we read that together? Do you believe this? I pray your answer will be yes with all of your heart. How do you express that positive answer of faith in Jesus? Paul writes in the book of Romans, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, remember Thomas, my Lord and my God. You confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. If you've never done this before, today is an amazing opportunity in your life, even for you listening online, watching online, listening to a podcast. If you've never made this great confession before and put your faith in, with all of your heart in Jesus as Lord and Savior, Today is the day. Imagine you'll be able to look back at April 9, 2023, Resurrection Sunday, as the day when your spirit came alive within you because of Jesus. Let's all bow our heads and pray. If you would like to make that good confession with your mouth, with your heart, then do so and say so today. Say to Jesus, 
Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for taking my sin upon yourself and exclaiming with finality, it is finished. And finally sealing the deal even more clearly as you emerged from that tomb so that all the world even today can declare he is risen, he is risen indeed. Lord Jesus, I give you my life. I confess with my mouth that you are my Lord and my God. I believe with all of my heart that you have risen from the dead. And I accept you into my life to be my Lord and my Savior, to be the change maker in my life. Not necessarily to change my circumstances, although I do hope some of them will, but to change me from the inside out so that my perspective in life and my purpose in life will be your perspective and your purpose. I give you my life, Lord Jesus. From this day forward, I'm yours. And Lord, for the rest of us, we just give you thanksgiving that could never be sufficiently expressed for the fact that you rose from the dead that day 2,000 years ago. And you're the reason why we're alive in spirit today, worshiping you for who you are. Thanks, glory, and praise be unto him who is risen and lives forever in the name of Jesus and all his people said, Amen and amen. God bless you all.